Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education and beyond. And yes, we like to have a little fun along the way. On the line today for this bonus special EdUp Embedded episode, we have Rick Beyer. He's Senior Fellow and Practice Area Leader for Mergers and Affiliations with the Association of Governing Boards, better known as AGB. Rick, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Joe. Thanks for having me. Well, boy, am I excited to have you on here, Rick, because I feel like, well, let me tell you how I feel, Rick. This is, this is uh, my podcast, so I get to do what I want around here. Sure. Um, I feel like there are a lot of people myself included to some degree, um, but I think I, one, one, I have one advantage is, is that I work in higher education, but we have a lot of people who are making predictions about what the future of higher education looks like. And I have noticed that a lot of those people who are making those predictions don't actually work in a higher education institution or haven't worked in a higher education institution. A lot of them are outside, they're ed tech, they might be faculty, and not a lot of administrators. And so I'm really excited to talk to you because I feel like, you know, with your 20 years experience at AGB, you focused on M&As almost exclusively this entire time, and no one knows what's happening out there more than you. So give us a once over. What's happening? What does it look like? What's the disruption? What's the level of disruption out there? So give us your, give us your best summary of what's happening right now. Yeah, well, let's, uh, thanks, Joe. Let's start with the financial model. The financial model for higher education is in crisis mode. Uh, we have, um, you know, uh, Moody's um, credit rating agency has uh, for three consecutive years downgraded higher education as an industry uh, from negative to, st from stable to negative. So we have a negative credit rating as, a, as an industry as a whole. <clears throat> and when you really start getting into the financial model, what's happening is that colleges, even though the cost of higher education is still high, that colleges and universities are still unable to reinvest into all the areas uh, within the operation to keep them um, uh, advanced on everything from paying people market wages to, to new program development, to technology, to better student outcomes. And so, so you've got a financial modeling problem. You have a, a nine years, uh, consecutive years of enrollment decline for degrees across the country. And you have a lot of changing uh, consumer um, uh, habits. And so you have this uh, uh, quite a bit of systemic issues going on. Now the disruption comes from new entrants, uh, it comes from uh, consumers seeking alternative pathways. It comes from corporations. It comes from a multiple a multitude of external forces. But it's all kind of adding up to what I call the consolidation era of higher education. And the consolidation era actually had begun before COVID. And now with COVID, it's now going to start to accelerate. So what does that mean, the consolidation area? Because um, I'll go in, into my mind. 
in my mind, there's some pathways and we don't have to get into everyone, but I, I, you know, have the fortunate or unfortunate experience of being, uh, of having gone through uh, five uh, merge, uh, sorry, five closures where my institution took students. Um, and that was during the for-profit closure era. Um, and uh, a couple of uh, teach outs, formal teach, out, teach outs and affiliation agreements uh, to the tune of about 5,000 graduates. Really lucky to be on the receiving end of that process with students feeling disrupted. And um, I don't know that, that nonprofit and public education um, really understands what could be coming their way. So what does consolidation area mean for somebody who's listening to this, it says, Rick, what the heck are you talking about? Yes, yes. So the era, the era of consolidation will, will include college closures. It'll include mergers. It'll include affiliations. It will include the establishment of private systems. Um, and so when you start to look uh, forward over the next uh, three, five, 10 years, you'll see less colleges uh, in, in its aggregate. And you'll see more mergers, more closures, more affiliations, and more private systems being formed. It'll all add up to actually less uh, entities out there delivering education. All right, so I'm a board. I'm a governing board right now. I'm, I'm looking at my institution. I'm assuming that this probably, what you're talking about, doesn't apply to an institution that has a multi-billion dollar endowment and more likely uh, applies to an institution that has one or two years of operating expense in their quote-unquote endowment. Um, and is figuring out how to, how to make it right now. So I'm aboard, I'm looking at the financial status of my institution. What, you know, options are, the, how, understanding how this works is actually more complicated than people think. You can't just go, okay, we're gonna merge. There's a, there's a uh, accreditation uh, timeline that's involved with this. There is a board level decision-making and voting that's, that, that uh, for independence or dependence, um, you know, is our institution going to survive or are we going to be folded in or, or taken over by someone else? Is that, that process, do you, think is, do you think that process is fully understood amongst governing boards right now? No, I, I don't. That's a great, great uh, statement in question, Joe. Um, I think because we're, we're a highly regulated industry, uh, and then you have the entire, what I'm just going to call sales cycle, or there's the cycle of, of how long it takes to do a transaction. <clears throat> Boards really need to think two, three, four years ahead of when they really are actually, when they need to start doing something. So if you take the, a, a standard bell curve, and on one hand, one flat edge, you have the, the institutions with a, a billion dollars or more in their endowment, and the other flat edge institutions with maybe one to two years left uh, in their life, I'll call those late in the life cycles. Those ones on the far far left that are, that are um, uh, one to two years are going to have a very difficult time because they're running out of, of uh, opportunities and you can't start a process when you're out of money. So uh, the, the, then the big question is, what do you do in the middle of the bell curve? And we're starting to see institutions, uh, and this is a positive trend, and I believe by boards, when, when they have know, five, six, seven years of revenue of, of maybe um, assets left, but they don't like the declining numbers that they're, that they're currently experiencing. Uh, they are now even starting to think more strategically. So too often boards are waiting until it's too late uh, uh, to be able to begin the process. Uh, some are starting earlier, but the, the, the definite challenges for the, the boards on what I'll call the sell side of the equation 
uh, to begin their process earlier. So I'm guessing that has something to do then with with being upside down, right? If, you're, if you've got two years of operating expense left, your enrollment's declining, you're probably upside down in your financials. You may not have a suitor out there that's willing to take on debt to, to help you survive. So you could be looking at a teach out faster than anything else. Would that be? Yeah, you could. And what happens is that uh, the longer you wait, if you see these declining trend lines, and what happens is that boards become hopeful. They're hopeful that the, the fall class next year will be larger. They're hopeful that somebody else will donate some money. But um, those trend lines, when you just follow those trend lines, a trend line will say, if it's not this year, it'll be next year or the year after. Uh, but what happens is that those boards are waiting waiting too long. So the longer they wait, the less uh, they're, they're able to, to find a suitable transaction. And then at the end of their life, it really becomes, uh, it is nearly not a pleasant experience for the sell-side institution. You know, loss of all jobs. Some of the mergers that you see today being announced really are more like real estate transactions than anything else. They're really kind of uh, uh, disguised as a merger. But, um, you know, the, 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 the most important thing that I tell institutions is, is think about a two-year process. The actual regulatory process might only take six, six, seven, eight, nine months, but it's really the, the maturing of a relationship, finding the right suitor and dealing from a position of strength. Even if you're on the sell side of the transaction, as I'd say a weaker institution, there are many things you can do uh, if you start early enough to, to have uh, as positive experience as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a tough call, right? For a board to make, to really look objectively at their, their trend lines and say, okay, uh, you know, what's the saying that it, your uh, history is the best uh, predictor of future performance? And, yeah. you know, I, I think that, but that's hard to see because you are hopeful. You're hopeful. You, you might change out your leadership. You might uh, have a release of new programs. You might have seen an uptick in enrollment one quarter and then all of a sudden say to yourself, wow, things are turning around. Let's give it another quarter. Well, that quarter goes by and you've, you've eaten up another quarter of operating expense. And so your timeline is further decreased. How does a board really get by that? What happens? What have you seen happen in terms of an inflection point of decision-making? Is it a chairman of the board, a chairperson of the board that makes this decision? Is it usually somebody driving this on a board? Or you think it happens more collectively? Because I just don't see, you know, eight, 10 board members all looking around the table at each other going, okay, let's start looking at an M&A. There's got to be some person or outside entity driving it. Yeah, and, and it is a start with, uh, you mentioned so many great things there, Joe, but let's talk about being a tough call because you're, we, we have volunteer boards, and I'm particularly talking about maybe the privates here. You have a volunteer board, uh, and, and many of the board members just did not sign up for, you know, for tough work. And so you have that, and you've got a nostalgia, you have a lot of emotion there within many of the board members. One of the things that I, I tell institutions is that you can still be hopeful and try to get that next class going and, and raise more money. But in a parallel process, you can, be, you can be running a project that will help you analyze where you're at as an institution, where you might be able to go in the future. And that inflection point, Joe, and you're asking me about that is really what I'll call the prosperity gap, which really is like a quality of earnings so that an institution can see how far they are behind in terms of the amount of underinvestment that's taking place at their institution. So they could be having enrollment challenges, financial challenges, and the prosperity gap will open up their eyes to say, and we have this much underinvestment uh, in our institution. 
um, that can help be a catalyst uh, and set context uh, for running a parallel process, which really should be done with a small board committee and the president so that they can become educated and then educate the entire board about, you know, what might be done in the future. And it doesn't mean they, they actually have to go through with it, but they could actually start running parallel looking for opportunities while they're, they're trying to improve their operation. Yeah. So that's, that's a good point. You know, it's a, it's due diligence is what you're saying, you know, do right. Explore this on the side, drive your operations to try to get to profitability or back in the, in the positive simultaneously look at options just in case it doesn't work. I think that's good business, you know, but to your point, a lot of people who are on boards are, are nostalgic. They don't want to think about that closure being associated with them. Uh, you know, having a, a closed institution kind of follows you on around through higher education. And so I think that's a, got, has people nervous. Well, let me ask you about this. I've got a, a theory here. It's, it's uh, self, self-created. So you tell me if I'm absolutely crazy or not, but um, uh, so coronavirus hits and you know, a bunch of people come out and say, you know what, over the next year, we're going to see tons of institutions close. You know, it's going to be, you know, Armageddon. We're going to have zombie institutions all over the place. It's, it's going to be crazy. And it hasn't quite gotten to that point. There's been a couple here, a couple there. Boards um, who have uh, worked with institutions who have prim- primarily had ground programs now move online. And so you have this sense of fool's gold a little bit where you've just changed your entire model by force or by choice, it doesn't matter. And think that you are going to increase enrollment because now you're in the online space. However, um, uh, online marketing is very, very different than marketing for on-ground programs. And there's a lot of big players in the online space. So it's going to take another year from now, in my opinion, for institutions to really figure out they absolutely cannot compete in the online marketing space for students. What do you think about that? I think you're 100% right on, Joe. I think it really comes down to the, the institutions that might be kind of doing hybrid because of COVID and, and they're thinking, well, well, I'm already online. I can start moving in forward that with that kind of um, market. In one regards, that's, it's good thinking, but the prices aren't going to hold. Uh, so you can't charge for a campus experience in an online setting. So um, what you have going on in the online world is really contraction of pricing and deflationary pricing going on. So the challenges for, say, the, the, the colleges kind of getting into traditional online, um, uh, when they really start getting to pure online, the prices that they have for a campus-based experience is never going to hold up. Online prices are far, far lower. Uh, but, uh, you know, definitely hybrid uh, has, uh, you know, has helped definitely kind of health colleges along the way. But uh, your point about uh, the, the fool's goal, um, that uh, you have to be prepared to participate in a market that has substantially lower price points compared to campus. Yeah, and that's tough to, to uh, get to that point, right? If you're an institution looking at your prices and say, okay, we've got to slash these prices by 40%. And then looking at how that affects the overall revenue, which you've been, right? It's, it's like your own paycheck, right? And you increase your earnings, you become accustomed to spending that amount of money. It's very difficult to right size or, you know, your pricing for an online world without taking significant hit. You've, you've got to then scale, right? The, if you're going to decrease your price point, you've got to, to meet scale in order to keep your revenue line the same. I don't know if that, you know, that's tough. 
Yeah. It's tough and, and to scale also, it on them. Yeah, and it also takes a different uh, type of organizational structure as well. So you're talking about trying to scale. <clears throat> it's just, as you know, it's a different mindset. The marketing is different. Uh, the 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 speed of 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 how you have to operate in an online world is in uh, seconds and minutes uh, versus in a campus world might be days, weeks, and months. Uh, so it's a vastly different um, uh, velocity of how things have to get done. And so generally speaking, um, when colleges try to do their online, if they try to do it with the same type of organizational structure, they're just not going to be able to even come close to being comp uh, competitive. Hey everyone, this is Joe, just reminding you to check out our website at www.edupexperience.com where you can find and explore all of the content that we've released under the EdUp Experience brand, including multiple podcast series, EdUp Elites, EdUp Embedded, and EdUp Experts. You can also suggest topics or guests for our podcast. Then head over to YouTube, check out our channel, The EdUp Experience, and you're going to find that my amazing co-host, Elizabeth Liba has started a new web series called EdUp Unplugged, where she talks about racism in America with special guests coming on that web series. We've got a lot going on at the EdUp Experience. Again, check out our website at www.edupexperience.com. Now let's get back to our guest. Is it reasonable that a board could look at their uh, status right now and think that they can maintain independence somehow, right? If you look at a teach out, you're, you know, there's not many choices here, right? If you're, if you're teaching out, you're done. Your institution effectively mm -hmm. goes away. If you, if you were the merge E into the merger, most likely, even in the situation, you know, that one that hits me at the top of my head was Robert Morris and, uh, uh, Roosevelt, uh, I think Roosevelt University in Chicago, uh, it absorbed Robert Morris, and they became a college within Roosevelt University. That, effectively, that, that goes away over time, no matter mm -hmm. how much dowry you bring to the table. If you're merging into someone, most likely over time, you're going to be gone. Um, if you are, um, if you are looking at shared services, that's one way um, to do it. Uh, but of course, you've got to change your entire financial model to, to meet that. Is, is maintaining independence the main issue for boards as they have this discussion? I think it is. I think that um, they, uh, and, and I'll use the word buy side and sell side so that, uh, um, you know, the sell side kind of representing maybe the, the weaker institution or a smaller institution looking for a, a strategic partner and the buy side of the institution being uh, of a stronger partner. Um, I think boards uh, in general uh, have kind of a binary review of things. They, they see we're either going to be independent, uh, well, actually, we're going to close, or we're going to, and the reason why we don't like mergers is because ultimately the entity does go away, the people goes away, the board and the president and the degree granting status goes away. So when boards just think kind of very simplistic, uh, they don't like the option of a merger, so they remain independent and ultimately they close. And um, uh, and so, but there are other options for them. There are other options for those uh, for those institutions, but the the farther they go into what I'll call late in the life cycle, late in their life cycle, the less real viable options they have. So at the end of the day, the boards kind of what I'm going to call run out the clock on the, on their institutions. 
by just uh, not running any kind of parallel process while they try to improve their operations. Well, and you're saying that they have less options. I'm assuming that's because you wait too long and most likely you're upside down in your financials and so you're less um, attractive. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're running deficits, probably your good people have left. Um, and and uh, on the buy side, they're really not interested in, in taking over millions of dollars of losses. Um, and in fact, these days, uh, you know, they're looking for transactions that can be accretive to their financial performance. So as at least break even or, or positive. So what happens is that, uh, um, yeah, there's just too many, too many problems with a late in life. And that's why ultimately it sometimes it just comes down to a real estate transaction. But um, uh, there, there definitely are alternatives. It doesn't mean that there's alternatives for everybody because it depends on how long you wait. Uh, but the earlier that a board can act in just exploring and becoming educated, all of a sudden they now have more than one option available to them. Now they may not, may or may not want to go down that option, but at least they become educated about what the possibilities are for the future. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, what, one of the things we've seen, um, Arizona university of Arizona goes and they, they get, uh, acquire, um, uh, Ashford university you know, I think in a play to get online as fast as an ASU is, you know, to, to become a player in the space. So they go and they, they go after a for-profit that's all online, take on, you know, 30,000 extra students or so, and, and basically automatically or quickly become a player in the online space. Are you seeing that model more right now? Are you seeing big players come out and try to suck up a, a, a institution that has a good online presence to move online to become a player in online? Well, there's less and less of that available, but I think that that would go into category. Uh, short answer is yes, I think there's interest, uh, but I think that what they're trying to do is acquire competencies, um, acquire competencies in that online. Um, that competencies includes uh, you know, student acquisition expertise of the speed and service of the operation. And so um, uh, for uh, a number of, of uh, institutions on, on the buy side, uh, they will be able to look at some for-profit operations uh, who have very, very strong marketing, uh, student acquisition skill sets, and, and online presence, um, and make that acquisition. Um, uh, and so I, I think there's going to be less and less of those available, uh, but, but we'll still see a few more of those happen. By competencies, you, you also mean, I think by competencies, you also mean, and this is me assuming, you know, sometimes the, the traditional university sector, if you will, is just caught up by a bunch of bureaucracies and committees and senates and decision-making malaise. And for-profit institutions historically have moved a lot faster. And so you could be, you know, in that case, you're buying an institution or acquiring an institution that is outside those lines a little bit to move more quickly outside of the traditional. Yeah, that, that's correct. What, what, what all organizations, so not just higher education, but any organization will have a rhythm, how they operate, an operating rhythm. And when you take, say, a traditional campus-based operating rhythm for uh, enrollment management, it is one that has very slow rhythms to it. There's a, you know, there's an application phase, there's student visiting, there's a financial aid phase, and it's very slow, long, slow waves. And when you get into the online, it is it is hyperspeed. It's uh, seconds and minutes where 
many of these large institutions will measure a lead going stale after 90 seconds, where in the campus world, you know, a lead might go stale after six months. So it is just a different, a different operating rhythm. And so the best way to do that is supposed to try to figure out how do I change the organization? It then becomes how do I acquire or partner or have another transaction with another organization that brings those competencies of that operating rhythm, that speed and service so that we can effectively compete in that online space. Yeah, that's a big point that you just made. And I've talked about this before and written a little bit about it. And then the difference between active recruitment and passive recruitment. The traditional higher education has been in a, in a passive recruiting mode. A student applies, sort of wait. You might get them, you enroll them, time goes by. Uh, where for-profit institutions and, and many smaller nonprofit institutions have been actively recruiting. They're, you know, I'll give you an example. At my institution, um, when somebody submits interest, we, we have a technology that calls, we call them back in less than 17 seconds. Yeah. And I know that my, my speed to uh, lead is a, a, about a 65% chance of securing that student because they go to the first institution that contacts them. And so I, you know, I've designed all my processes to be the first. I want to be the first. I want to be either gain or lose and be the first one that does that. And uh, you know, so that's active recruitment. And and schools are looking at this now, saying, okay, we're going to compete in the online space. We're going to market in the online space. But to your point, don't have the infrastructure be fast to to, to break the traditional model of recruitment. Yeah, and then and and not only that, and what you said about you know how fast the these students uh, want to uh, purchase. Um, and, and you think about what I'm going to call the revenue cycle. So in a, just a, a standard traditional campus uh, environment, you really have two cycles per year of revenue, right? You have your fall revenue and you have, a, say, a January revenue. You might do something in the, in the summer, but it's really minute. But the traditional, what I'm going to call revenue cycles, when you get in the online world, uh, you can have daily revenue cycles. You can have 365 days a year of revenue because mm -hmm. students in that market, when they are interested, they want to buy and they want to buy now. Your point about you know, having a 65% better chance of, of, of getting that student is uh, whoever gets to that student first in a successful dialogue with them will win. And, uh, and that will generally happen in seconds. Uh, so maybe minutes, but uh, so you can definitely see, you know, when you when you have a, a 365 day cycle where every day you can sign up revenue versus a two times a year cycle, it just calls for a different type of operating rhythm. Yeah, that's that's also well said. You know, you think about um, moving programs online is one step. As, you know, for 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 the students at an undergraduate level, the consumers changing, right? There's going to be risk tolerance that's going to be a big part of decision-making coming out of coronavirus. And do I want to go on campus? Do I want to stay home? Do I want to go sometimes and, and not all the time? Uh, at the master's degree level, dealing with adult students, entry points become a big deal. And so you can move online, but do you have enough entry points to really compete with a buyer who's ready when they're ready? And that's a, a big thing that I think has been missed and not um, not as often discussed as probably it should have been. You can't operate on a semester-based system at, at a level with adult students. You have to have multiple entry points, which to your point, speeds up revenue. Yeah, um, and, and exactly. And I'll have, you know, some colleges say, oh, we have, we've gone from three to six starts a year. That's again, three to six starts a year where uh, you're going to have institutions that will adjust their schedules and allow students to sign up 
every day of the year and get them in. And uh, while, while you're waiting a month or two to fill a class, those students don't ultimately go other places. So that, that whole entry point uh, part of it, if you don't have your classes designed the right way and the operations designed the right way, you could be spinning your wheels and signing up students and then they melt out uh, before the start of your session. Okay, so coronavirus hits. Rick, you're, you're a busy guy. Uh, how much busier are you now? You know, you're talking about the era of consolidation. How real is that right now? You know, have you seen a large ramp up since March of discussions, institutions uh, reaching out to AGB saying, Rick, what the heck are we supposed to do? Is it, are you a lot busier than you were before? Yeah, I would say last year was very busy and this year is just crazy busy. We're, I'm up probably twice as much. I think one of the reasons uh, well, to, uh, why we can handle that amount of business is actually not traveling <laughs> near, nowhere near as much because we're, we're zooming a, a lot. But um, um, many institutions are starting to um, realize that something's not right. There could be opportunities on the buy side to create a very, um, very good strategy. And even on, the, even on the sell side, some great opportunities for sell side institutions. So it definitely is um, a, a very busy time. Um, uh, with, uh, with colleges and universities. Uh, but I would also say that um, even on the sell side, one of the things that I'll work with institutions on, and I'll call it becoming affiliation ready, but even part of that, uh, and during that process, focuses in on a growth plan and a substantial growth plan for the college, even while they are looking at uh, maybe options for partners. Then on the buy side, creating um, proactive uh, buy-side strategies for mergers, affiliations, uh, or certain acquisitions. Yeah, it's, it's complicated. I mean, you know, I think that, uh, like I said, I think that's one of the missed points is, is the complication of, of these processes. Talk about accreditation just a tad. Uh, are accreditors aware of the movement out there? Do institutions uh, notify their accreditors when they're thinking about looking at a at a pathway towards potential merger, potential potential consolidation or affiliation in the future, and and are accrediting uh, uh, agencies from your perspective ready for this level of movement? Uh, the short answer is they are aware and they're getting ready. Uh, they're 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 more ready today than they were a year ago or two years ago. Uh, well, I just finished a a workshop with uh, Middle States with Heather Perfetti, the president of Middle States just last week on the future of higher education, which also talked of, about substantially about uh, mergers and acquisitions and affiliations and the regulatory process. Um, I'll be a featured speaker at HLC's annual conference in April. I've presented to HLC numerous times. Uh, they're really um, doing a great job in terms of, of being proactive about becoming prepared uh, for this. Uh, so uh, the short answer is yes. and. Uh, uh, but one of the things that the complexity also comes in on a transaction is the maturing of the relationship between the buy side and the sell side. So typically what, what you have to think about, I tell colleges, you know, the, the regulatory process might be six months, but the whole cycle might be two years. And the first part is, is the maturing of just the relationship inside the current board, say of a sell side institution to coming to consensus and, and uh, as a governing board to explore options. And then you not only have to explore options, but you then have to develop a relationship with the buy side. And the buy side has their board as well. They have to build the same kind of consensus that uh, doing a transaction with the sell side 
uh, institution is also going to be beneficial. So you have that maturing of the relationship that happens even before what I'm going to call letter of intent that will lead to a letter of intent. And then after that letter of intent uh, will be, say, further due diligence and a definitive agreement. Then after that definitive agreement, you can go into some regulatory approvals before closures. So there are some moving pieces, um, but the longest really is the relationship building between the buy side and the sell side and, and figuring out the strategy, both if you're on the buy or the sell side. All right, Rick, so give me advice. I am, uh, I am aboard. I'm nervous. I've, n- I've not talked to anyone before. I'm looking at my financials right now. I'm maybe three to five years out. See declining enrollment. What do I do? Do I reach out to you? Do I sit down and have a conversation at my board with my board? What's my first three steps in order to even approach something like this? I would say, first of all, they would want to, the board would want to set up a little subcommittee with the president. Um, and that the board should authorize the, the setting up of the subcommittee. Because what you want to be able to do is get the boards in a, in a series of yesable decisions. So just setting up a small subcommittee. I always say uh, to explore strategic partnerships. I never use harsh words like a merger and acquisition. Basically would advise you to set up a subcommittee to explore long-term strategic partnerships. And that, that would be with the president. And then... Uh, what they can do is they can reach out to me at AGB, and, uh, and then what we can then do is put them through a, a, a formal process, and that formal process will include, will include doing a, running a prosperity gap, that quality of earnings. It'll talk with them about how to put their best foot forward of, if it's a sell-side institution, and that would include really helping them with a growth plan so that when they put their foot forward, to the buy side, they can show what their growth plans are and, uh, and that they believe that they can reach these growth plans in, in a partnership and then continuously um, updating and educating the board in, in say in full sessions, say in executive sessions. So, um, and then getting the, the full board to constantly acknowledge and endorse the work so that, that as an organization, you can take certain steps to methodically move the sell side board uh, with education and have them uh, continue to approve a series of small decisions. And that one decision ultimately could be, yes, the authorization for the, say, the board chair and the president to explore formal uh, affiliation opportunities. That's amazing, Rick. That's uh, incredible advice. So last question we always ask every guest, what does the future of higher education look like? I would say a lot more technology. Um, I would say the, the, you're going to see uh, a significant uptick in um, corporations um, guiding what they need uh, from learning. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot more emphasis on workforce development by colleges. Uh, and I think you're going to see a lot more hybrid and blended learning uh, that'll come together. And also, I believe the price points will continue to come down. So a lot of disruption, but incredible opportunity. I'm, I'm an optimist uh, for education. And even those who might believe they're on the sell side, especially if, if, you, if you have you know, five or seven years available of, 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 uh, of resources, there are some tremendous opportunities out there for even small uh, entrepreneurial institutions. 
How do we get a hold of you, Rick, to uh, to explore this if uh, you're inter- you're a board that's interested? Yeah, the best thing would be to email me at uh, uh, rbuyer at agb.org. That's r-b-e-y-e-r at agb.org. And I'll be happy to uh, chat with you. And you can uh, find me uh, on LinkedIn and send me a note. But I'll be happy to have a phone call or set up a Zoom meeting. But uh, Joe, very much appreciate uh, the time being with you today. Oh, no, it's a, it's an honor, sir, with everything that you're doing out there. You know, uh, we pride ourselves here at the Edup Experience to bring in as many diverse voices as possible. You know, this is a topic that uh, I think is discussed, but not not as openly as it needs to be sometimes, and on, that there are options out there. It is possible to survive uh, amongst all the doom and gloom uh, of certain prognosticators, and, you know, this is one way to get that information. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the Edup Experience podcast special Edup embedded episode with Rick Byer, senior fellow and practice area leader for mergers and affiliations at the Association of Governing Boards. Rick, thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the Edup Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. And if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen live and get the scoop before anyone else. So please always feel free to share this podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. We would really appreciate that. You've been listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business.